Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. This is widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for downloading, listening, and subscribing. Hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, here, here today, we will once again be kicking back with another relaxing episode of Easy Ass Content. You know what it is. It's the Listen With Sam side series, where we take it easy with a solo Paul McCartney album that I've reviewed in the past, and revisit it with fresh eyes to see if anything has changed. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about an album that I've been listening to and talking about longer than any other in his discography, which can only mean we are going to be sinking our fangs into Wings and or Paul McCartney in Wings 1973 mega hit studio album, Band on the Run. Woo! We finally are going to do Band on the Run, folks. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while, actually, because just like Ram and Wildlife... This is really going to be a challenge in terms of my ability to fit into what I'm going to say. You know, this album is an incredibly quick 41 minutes long. And, you know, 41 minutes could quite easily be just the amount of time it takes me to review two songs on a regular episode. And this is Band on the Road. There's a fucking lot to say. Wish me luck. Though, for the sake of true transparency, this episode really should have been out at least half a year ago. But as many of you will know... I did an appearance on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews podcast, where I and the host did indeed review Band on the Run in full. That was a fantastic experience for me. Go and check out the episode if you haven't already. So, as you can imagine, I was pretty burned out on Band on the Run. I kind of still am, but I want to get this episode out there because A, I know all of you love this album, and B, we've got to do it so we can get to Venus and Mars and beyond Of course, go and check out the original Band on the Run episode I did like half a decade ago to see if you want to see where my opinions have changed. And the other reason I wanted to do this podcast now was so I could listen to other podcasts about Band on the Run. Uh, Shockingly, I don't actually listen to other podcasts' reviews of albums when I'm going to do that album. But unfortunately for me, at the time of recording, the We Don't Believe in Beatles podcast has just released their Band on the Run episode. I really want to listen to it. You should too. So I've got to do this episode right now so I can stop recording and go listen to it. But yeah, this has been somewhat an important bit of homework for me. Um, You know, regardless of how overplayed this album may be, it still means the world to me, you know. It's one of those truly formative albums of my youth. I've been listening to my late father's copy that he Bought back in 1973, you know, once a month for the past few years. And it's banned on the run. You know, everyone thinks this is Wings or Paul McCartney's best album. You know, it's always topping the, you know, it's always topping ranked listings of Paul's work. Though, since we are now coming up to Off the Ground, and we've been doing this podcast for a few years now, I'm not so sure if this is the great album. I've always ranked Ram. Higher than Band on the Run, as many of you will know. But, 
and this isn't even my hipster contrarian self talking. I, I just think that there are other albums Paul has put out. I'm not going to be specific now, but Paul has definitely put out albums that are at least equally as strong and as consistent and as well written as Band on the Run. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that, like Tug of War, it might be a little overrated, at least within the context of his own canon. But hey, at least I can talk about this stuff in detail now, uh, you know, without having to worry about whether I'm behaving myself or not on someone else's podcast. But hey, before we do any of that, we do need to crack on with the housekeeping. What have we got in terms of news this week? Not a whole lot, so we'll move right on to the emails. Yes, get in contact with the show at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I want to hear your Paul McCartney stories, your trivia, your history with him, any insane anecdotes you have. I want to hear reviews of albums we've talked about on the show. I want to hear reviews of albums we're about to cover on the show, as well as films, documentaries, books, that kind of thing. Anything you have to say about Paul McCartney, I want to hear it at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. If you want day-to-day updates, check us out on our Twitter, which is at McCartney Pod, that's, you know, the place where I get to put all of my insane Macca ramblings and test the waters of the of the fan base, you know? For extra bonus content, if you haven't got enough Paul today, or if Paul or nothing for that matter, go and check out our sister blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com for all sorts of extra blog posts and McCartney articles. Find us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. If you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a five-star review on whatever podcasting platform you are using. If you're on YouTube, please give us a little thumbs up. We'd really appreciate that. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, if you've been enjoying the work I put in, you want to see the show grow, you want to help keep the lights running, you want to make it easier for me to produce new content, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon, as I'm sure you know, is a platform where you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself by throwing a couple of dollars a month at my face down the internet. It's always appreciated, of course, none of you out there are obliged to. These are difficult times and all that. But if you've got a few dollars to spare, please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family, a family including people such as... Stephanie Miller, Louis DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia P, Robert Carabelli, Matt Phillips, Warren Butson, and the OG Tony Vosal. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. And now that we've gotten our way through the plugs and promotions, it's time to ready up our own vinyl copies of Band on the Run. And as I like to do on these episodes, I like to remind you to try and picture the world where this is a brand new album and all we've had from Wings so far up to this point are a couple of new singles, one of them being My Love, another being Live and Let Die, and two not-so-beloved albums. Imagine you didn't know anything that came out after, like Venus and Mars, and let's try and just meet the album on its own terms. And just before we begin, everyone, just to let you know, this is going to be the British copy of Band on the Run. So you Yanks out there with your Helen wheels on your copy of the album, you might just have to skip ahead three minutes when you get to that point. But yeah, right, if you've all got your copies of the album ready, well, you don't really need to. I'm going to be playing the music on my end anyway. But if you want to listen along, go right ahead, because we are, are about to start with Band on the Run. Ah, and there we go. The US number one title track from what is highly regarded as the magnum opus of 70s Paul McCartney. 
We're here right now in the opening segment. There are three in total. And I just love how we're starting things off really slowly here. This is a very knowingly unassuming move from Paul as he lulls us into a full sense of security and there's very little to indicate what's going to be going on here. Especially when compared to the last two albums. That, that guitar tone is just gorgeous. And Paul's voice is so mellifluous already. Oh, and we have those lovely little Linda Moog lines. Oh, that's so, that's so Linda. And it actually sounds like she's playing it. And I mean that in the best way possible, you know I do. We've already got the classic Wings trio harmonies here. You know, this is already stronger than anything that was on the last two albums. Like, this actually feels like a fucking album again. And look, you know me, I've got a soft spot for the last two, but this is another level already, as cliche as that is. And then we come to the rocking middle section now, where we we get a little showcase you know, of the second point Paul wants to make with this track is that Wings can and will be rocking the house on this album. And, oh my God, I, I, I love this bit so much. And, of course, we have the famous line coming up, if we ever get out of here, famously said by George Harrison during the last days of the Beatles. And more than being an example of George's pessimism of that time, it is... Paul laying down the themes of this album nice and early. You know, this is the setup. This is a, an album of escape and the search for freedom. And that's going to come up time and time again on this album. Oh, and here we go. The transition to the third segment. That interweaving of the caustic guitar sound and the big brass band. Oh, it's just so fucking perfect. It's very George Martin and it's a great microcosm of the McCartney conflicting musical interests and yeah we come to the C and F acoustic closer and <laughs> I mean how can you not be into this it's just so catchy it's so fun it's so upbeat and uplifting and <laughs> you have to have a heart of stone to be immune to this weirdly though um I wish both of the previous segments had been longer in comparison to this one. Like, this is the lion's share of material right now. And that sentiment is stronger in me more than ever now since I stumbled across the US radio edit for this song. And yet, it does trim a lot of this tail fat. I mean, I'm going to say this throughout this album, but this is an album of songs that are all slightly too long. But, you know, when you have a song like this, that does feel like a true return to form, even though he never really left. You can forgive a bit of self and audience indulgence here. And I know I spoke earlier about the idea of this being a very overplayed album. This is one of the most overplayed songs on it, and yet I do not have the same kind of negative feeling that I have towards a song, a song like Jet or something like that. I guess, you know, this is kind of the the hey jude of this album you know you get annoyed by it but you can't stay mad at it if anything you get mad at how much you get sucked in each time instead but yeah this is an incredible opening track for an album that is a massive artistic statement you know mccartney's taken his melody compositional tricks and you know 
what McCartney's doing in this song is just he's just so clever. He's taking everything he's learnt from like medleys at the end of Abbey Road and Red Rose Speedway, and he's moved it front and centre to the very first track for everyone to hear. It's like bam, I'm still Paul. I haven't changed. I haven't done anything too different from the last two albums, and it's only and it. And you're the assholes. You're the ones who've taken three years to realise how great Wings are. It's so defiantly Paul, you know. It's just as much a protest song as Mary Had a Little Lamb or Silly Love Songs. And it just, you know, this song arguably does everything that the entire album of Red Rose Speedway was trying to do in the sense that it's trying to prove that Wings are rockers but also have something for everyone. We've got the three genres in this track, one of them's very badass, one of them's very sing-along, one of them's very kitchen saccharine. You know, there is something for everyone in this song, and it rocks. So, mission accomplished, if you ask me. Here we go, though, folks. Of course, we do indeed have to come onto Jet, the other single from this album, the other big one. Though, it only picked up seven in both the US and UK. Despite that, though, it's easily one of, if not the most popular song from the album, like even more so than the title track. What this song is, though, is Paul keeping up the momentum and continuing to prove to us listeners that Wings are, in fact, here to rock. You know, this is our second rocket in a row now, which I don't think Wings have even done, at, you know, not until this point. And for their standards, for a soft pop group, this is a really heavy one, you know. Not only that, but... So what we have with Band on the Run is an album, rather than being stocked with unknown Wings rarities, bam, we have two hit opening rock and roll singles back-to-back at the start of the album. And, you know I me, mean, I love a good front-ended McCartney album. And these two songs do the heavy lifting in terms of changing people's minds and perceptions about Wings. You know, I think Band on the Run and Jet as a one-two punch probably did more for McCartney's career than any other two-song combination. It's also one of Paul's most interesting bass lines in his career. You know, we all look at silly love songs and Good Night Tonight, but the simple thudding drone that we have in this song creates this this pseudo metal pop sound that Wings rarely ever did. I wish they had. I wish they'd have done it more. You know, it combines with the silly Moog from from Linda brilliantly. We have some of that brass undercurrent in the background to keep it all moving. And you know, I, I can definitely appreciate this song and you know, love its craft more than I do like you know, enjoying it as I as I listen to it. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not cold. I don't skip the track or anything like that. And indeed, you know, I caught myself singing along when I saw Paul live. But this is the overplayed song for me. And that's such a terrible thing for a podcaster to admit on his own show. Especially since I don't even live in the age of radio. So if this song is overplayed, it is 99% self-inflicted and my own fault. But this is such an overrated track. It's not bad, but I don't know why... This is the classic that it is. You know, it, it's catchy. It's got an upbeat chorus. It's got the signature three-part wings harmonies. You've got, got, you got the brass. You've got all these things complementing each other. you got Paul's shrieking powerhouse vocal. And I can't explain why I don't like it. Maybe it's just 
you know, a case where I could just put it down to taste. I think this was one of my favourite songs in my early teens. Uh, but now, now that I've got a broader appreciation for McCartney's ever-expanding songbook, it's only made this song appear more mediocre by comparison. I also remember, uh, on, on the original Band on the Run episode, I spoke about my confusion as to the original uh, title of this song and its meaning. Like, it's widely accepted now that Jet is the name of a black Labrador that McCartney owned, but I thought it was a horse. Uh, but then I actually went onto the Wikipedia entry for this song and I found this segment, and I quote, However, in a 2010 interview on the UK television channel ITV1, Wings Band on the Run, to promote the 2010 re-release, McCartney explained that Jet was the name of a pony he had owned, although many of the lyrics bore little relation to the subject. Indeed, the true meaning of the lyrics has defied all attempts at decryption. <laughs> so, I don't know who's wrong there, honestly, folks. Then on to our third song, and finally we have the opportunity to chill out in the relaxing, inviting world of Bluebird. And to this day, I still cannot believe that Paul can have two separate songs named after two birds, with both of them being a, a bird of colour and the second word being bird. What's weirder though is how they are both these absolutely all-encompassing mini masterpieces. I mean, is it heresy to say that I prefer Bluebird to Blackbird at this point? I don't know. It's how I feel. When I saw Paul live, again, Blackbird made me cry. Of course it did. However, and not to bring down the tone too much, you know, Bluebird is a song that reminds me of my parents, particularly my late father. So it's always going to be my de facto favourite of the two, no matter how technically good or revolutionarily finger-picking Blackbird may have been. Also, Blackbird doesn't have any of these amazing Wings trio harmony vocals that we're hearing right now. Like... These might be, indeed be some of the best harmonies they ever fucking did as a band. It is unbelievably gorgeous here. And, you know, does Blackbird have a majestically nostalgic Howie Casey saxophone solo? No, it does not. In terms of sequencing, this is a classic McCartney fast song, slow song transition. You know, he's proven his point with a double hitter of Band on the Run and Jet. And now he's going to switch up gears to show us that he's also more than capable of giving us these classic emotional McCartney acoustic tunes you know this is meant to be a classic for the more dedicated fans but it's still a classic in its own right also we can't ignore folks Bluebird's a fucking awesome song which makes three for three in a row now in terms of quality my own objections of Jet being overplayed aside which arguably means that this is the first time that Mac has pulled off such a successfully consistent run of songs since Ram and only now is he being recognised for it funny how things work eh it's also the first chance on the album he has to deliver something a bit more lyrically poignant and my god he, he, he sticks the landing here I mean it's not McCartney's most intricate or complex lyric but in the way that the quasi concept themes of the album are all about escape and freedom it just feels so natural and free-flowing, you know. You know, McCartney's not opening himself up 
massively everything and gives us a peek behind the curtain. But he's showing us what, what he what he cares about and what he yearns for. And thankfully, what he yearns for are just as universal, are just as universally universal as other people's wants and desires. You know. I think finally Paul is connecting with his audience here by simplifying his message. It's not it's not about love, you know, this isn't a silly love song. This is about something with a little more bite to it. You know, this is something with a bit more meat to it, you know, a bit more to chew on. Now we come on to Mrs. Vanderbilt, the second of the album's very welcoming Come Sit by the Campfire with us kind of songs. Which I think every Wings fan has a soft spot for somewhere. Still running through the gamut of Macish songwriting tropes, this is Paul showing us he could do the silly, jaunty sing-along tunes, something kind of like All Together Now. Though I, well, I have to point out again that we are continuing a run of unbroken, high-quality McCartney songs here. And the album's only feeling more and more classic by the second. This song immediately overwhelms you with good vibes. You know, this song, you know, the last song was a search for freedom, and this song is a little taste of that freedom. Or, you know, a desire to be left alone in that freedom. You know, this album doesn't have time for anything too heavy. And after one quick introspective song, we are back to this more bouncy, carefree adventure. It is silly, but it's not a silly love song. And it exudes, and it just exudes that 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 classic, fun, almost like country folksy McCartney feel. Um, but without any of the uncoolness factor that had been previously plaguing the band, you know. And that call and response section, clearly designed for a crowd, the ho-hey-ho ho stuff. God, that's fun. Speaking of fun, in the prep for this episode, I rewatched the performance Paul gave of, of this song in Kiev back in 2008, which was the first time he ever played it live. And it was an audience request, which is awesome. I couldn't help but notice that maybe the reason this song isn't played more by Paul live is just the fact that isn't much fun for the band to play on stage. Like, I always try and get my friends to play boring three-chord rock and roll songs, and them being virtuoso musicians means they're not interested and they won't play it a second time around. So, you know, if you're going to make Rusty and Abe and Wicks and Brian and Brian play this song, you know, don't, don't expect them to be jazzed after it, you know. Also, I'd love to know where Paul got the reference for the Vanderbilts or the Vanderbilts from. That'd be quite interesting to find out. Of course, the part where he sings, Leave Me Alone, Mrs. Vanderbilt, fits in with all the themes again. Maybe it's Paul referencing wanting to escape the lives of the, of the rich and famous. You know, is it another Alan Klein reference? Who knows? Also, this is going to sound a bit weird, but recently I've not been able to help but view Mrs. Vanderbilt as the kind of bit bop of Band on the Run. But instead, this is like what if McCartney had taken Bitbop back to the studio and actually polished it off? You know, this is a very simple track and without the electric guitars and vocal breaks, its jaunty rhythm could have outstayed its welcome. So I guess what, what I'm trying to say is, is that this song knows how to shift gears and change itself up often enough to not be boring and keep your attention. Though, 
Oddly enough, isn't this like the longest song on the album so far? Okay, this is the second longest song on, 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 on the album so far. And for me, this flies by way quicker than Band on the Run and Jet do. So that's just a testament to, I'm not going to use the word again, but this song's just so much fun, isn't it? I like no one can listen to this song without a big smile on their face. It starts to get very um, within you, without you, uh, you know my name, look up the number towards the end of this song though, I, I love all the little giggles and stuff. It's silly again, but it's one of those little studio affectations that Paul knows to put into an album that just relieves any tension there may have been before, you know. Not that this song is particularly foreboding or anything, but if you weren't already smiling, you will be by the end. And next up, folks, we have Let Me Roll It, which by now has become a bit of a meme in the McCartney live set list and another one that I do think is overplayed. Though I cannot stress enough, when this song came out in 1973, I can only imagine how legitimately slick and smooth and cool it must have sounded and made Paul look. Because of that... This is, of course, our first real riff of the album. And in all fairness, it is one of Paul's most iconic for a reason. The entire thing is so cinematic. And those little pauses between the two little bursts of notes only highlights just his showmanship at this point. Now, I too can remember when I thought this was one of the best songs Paul had ever made. But now, like Jet, I think it's just okay. Like, I I don't have to wait one more album till I would get Letting Go for a much better heavy growler of a wings rock tune. Though, in its defence, I'd say its greatest strength is just how impeccably sequenced it is. You know, not only are we ending side one on another definitive wings rocker, but after such a light-hearted track as the last one, it really does grab your attention with its badassery. Apparently, the song is supposedly about Paul offering a joint to roll and share it with John Lennon in an act of peace, you know, extending the olive branch. Not sure how much of that is true and how much of that is people wanting this to be a song about John Lennon. Either way, it's quite cute, though. I mentioned this is the last song. Now, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, because... I'd love to know how much of this album was made with a live audience in mind. Because as we know, Let Me Roll It is another perfect stadium filler song from this album. And the fourth track that would go on to stock the set list for Wings Over America. Not only that though, but this song is just so good at doing what it's set out to do. You know, this isn't my kind of McCartney thing, but I know he wanted to make a song exactly like this. And he did. And since then, it's been a staple of McCartney set lists right the way up to the present day, which is both 
amazing, if somewhat draining. And more than me playing this album, what makes this song overplayed is the fact that Paul has just been playing it since basically 1976. And then it'll end with the foxy lady bit from Jimi Hendrix. And at the end of the day, as much as this is a showcase for Wings to, you know, rock out, it's more just a showcase for Paul to do some lead guitar work and, you know, sing Paul, get that red guitar out and make sure everyone's looking at him as he played this, has made the song lose a bit of its charm. And, you know, he really does need to play more of Letting Go in his concerts in, you know, in place of this one. I mean, even some of his gigs have both Letting Go and Let Me Roll It, which makes no sense. But yeah, I still need a little more time away from this song before I can enjoy it the way I did when I first heard it. Again, like Jet. Because unlike Jet, I, I, I do know that this is legit. Because unlike Jet, there is much more of me that, that really does appreciate this song. But, you know, like having too much candy, my tummy just hurts now. I, I don't want any more. Something else I just want to point out before we do finish side one is that we've been entirely without any Paul McCartney piano on this album and we've been entirely without Silly Love Songs, two of the main elements of the Paul McCartney songbook. And it makes you wonder whether this is, in fact, what people did want from Paul. Is it a coincidence that he, you know, arguably his most popular album is the one that avoids the Tin Pan Alley side of Paul McCartney? Is Band on the Run the key album because it's fundamentally a rock-oriented album? I think so. I mean, Ram was a rock album, but it was folksy and weird, and now we've got a much more commercial pop rock and hard rock sound for the radio masses. And there we are. We are at the end of side one. I'm just going to get up and flip over my disc to side two. What do you think? You know, art... You already convinced that this is Paul McCartney's best post beatle album? Did people trust that McCartney had truly returned to form at this point? Or were they apprehensive about side two? You know, what horrible medleys are on the next side, I'm sure some people were wondering. Has this been the best five song run of any Paul McCartney album? These are all very interesting questions you know have we had the best singles pause released at this point featured on this album as well there there are a lot of plates spinning here folks to make this album what it is and yeah let's just let's just dive right back in with starting off side two with a truly more delicate touch McCartney gifts us with Mamunia the album's most soulful and whimsical moment those opening nursery rhyme wholesome guitar notes that McCartney and or Denny begin plucking just instantly put you at ease you know this has the, the sing-along ability of Mrs Vanderbilt and the tender inviting come sit with us by the campfire quality of Bluebird I mean bar the title track this might be the most band on the run-esque track on band on the run as an opener to side two again absolutely perfect sequencing from Paul here transitioning from the hard rocker at the end of side one to one of the two softest songs on the album like rather like Vincent Mars there's this quite subtle transition from side one to two where it's indicating that the next lot of songs are going to be slightly different and we might be getting some more 
esoteric and unique numbers this time around. You know, it's rather telling that the second side of Band on the Run doesn't have any A-side singles on it. If memory serves correctly, this was based on the hotel in Morocco called like, the Mamonia or Mamonia or something like that. And it seems like this is one of McCartney's little homegrown phrases. You know, there's no hair on a seagull's back. However, the rest of the lyrics, uh, which have often been compared to uh, Lennon's Beatle track Rain, uses rain as a metaphor for rejuvenation, freedom, rebirth, all of those wonderfully positive things. Again, all perfect metaphors for your number one album, as you, you know, coming back from a slump, as it were there, Paul. But again, the themes are all just being layered on thick as molasses here. This is all about freedom and escape and the yearning, the struggle of all of it. And, you know, this isn't the tightest theme. It's not very restrictive, but, you know, it's spread across the album uh, consistently enough, you know, for you to get the point. Now, again, this whole album is a great showcase for Wings. And what this song here reinforces is just how key this vocal... Oh, just listen, listen to them. That vocal trio, that harmony is, is unbeatable. Of course, you can argue that a lot of the closeness and the sentiment that, that, that they may be feeling in the studio at this point may come from the fact that they had just lost two members of the band. But, you know, when push comes to shove, when their backs are against the wall, they, they really pulled out something angelic. And, you know, whilst Paul undoubtedly is the glue that holds it all together, the serendipity of all of their voices coming together and working so well is beaten only by the Beatles themselves. In addition to being a demo of the band's vocals, you could also argue that this song is another little Linda showcase. We have some great little Moog lines again, and maybe you shouldn't play a whole lot of them, but, you know, if we're going by the Macca narrative here, the little music video in your mind would have Linda going out, or you know, have, would have Linda going all out on the keys while singing the harmonies in the studio. It's a fun little image, even if it is just a story. Um, I also hate to bang an old drum here, but this is the sixth quality song, the sixth ace song we've had in a row at this point. You know, the chain has remained unbroken, and you know, this this run of songs is simply inspiring, isn't it? Mamunia, Mamunia, oh, 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 oh. Another really long song here, though, folks. Uh, this is actually the second longest song we've had so far. But like Mrs. Vanderbilt, it just rockets on by, doesn't it? Oh, listen to Linda there. And you can hear Paul in the background going, I like it. Like, I hope that's a live take of just him complimenting Linda. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Go on, Linda. I've got a bit of a soft spot for Linda at the moment because I'm, I am writing a blog post where I'm just talking all about Linda. And I wish I could have fit Mamunia into my top 12 list room because she's so great here. And then we come on to No Words, which I'm sure you all will know has been our outro song for nearly five years now. 
And I always get irked when I see Mamunia or Mrs. Vanderbilt being billed as the great underrated tune from this album, because for me, it's always been no words. You know, it's one of the most underrated wing songs in the entire canon, let alone this album. Though I have just realised while I'm speaking now that you will have heard me talk with this song playing in the background so many times, but this time it's actually part of the format. I hope this isn't too deja vu-y for you or anything, um, you know, or like maybe you're going to have a Pavlovian response and think I'm about to sign off, because I'm not. You know, this is the only accredited Denny Lane composition on this album. Technically, it's a co-write with Paul. It's easily the best song that Denny ever sang lead vocals on in his Wings tenure. You know, this was his first featured credit on an album. And to this day, that ascending, exalted riff that makes the core of this song, listen to it. It's still one of the most utterly sublime moments on the album ever. It's a real highlight, and it's a shame Denny Lane doesn't get more credit for it. Though, I do find it quite hilariously ironic that, you know, Paul's most successful album is the one with the best Denny Lane contribution on it. Is that a coincidence? I think not. Denny Lane's influence is all over this album, and he's just an unsung hero. I know I can take the mick out of Denny a little bit because he's a brummy lad, but come on. This is such a beautiful song. And the real tragedy is that it's so goddamn short. It's the shortest song on the album. You know, so many songs could have been trimmed, and yet this one leaves me wanting more. And part of what makes it so great is how it, it burns at both ends, you know. You know, it, it, it's, it's a real run and gunner. And the fact that the solo ends with that trail out leads me to believe that there is more to this song that could exist out there. Just listen to that. Go on, Denny. You know, now that I think about it, I can't exactly remember why this song was chosen as the closer for the show, but that solo certainly helped. And now we come on to our penultimate song, Picasso's last words, Drink to Me, which... He's actually starting off with a very prominent Denny Lane vocal in the mix there, which, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that, especially since how short No Words was. But yeah, this is a, is a song that McCartney wrote at the behest of Dustin Hoffman as a little songwriting exercise, which is a very interesting piece of trivia. But don't worry, folks, this is certainly not one of those songs where I find the backstory to be more interesting than the track itself because this song is just brilliant, isn't it? Funnily enough, though, I would have most certainly heard this one, this medley, before the Abbey Road one. Perhaps this is why it still sounds so fresh and creative and inventive to me now, when it's all simply down to the fact that I was exposed to it first. But even if I, even if I hadn't have been, this song would still be all of those things. Like all the best Paul McCartney albums, aka Ram, Paul cannot contain his ability to stitch different songs together into a single suite and we've heard it we've we've heard it once before with the title track and now for the second to last track Paul is reminding us again that this is what he does he does it well and that it's unbelievably fun like we are at the cornea end of the shtick and rather than being a cornucopia of new mini ideas this song is a medley of function rather than form 
the twist this time around is that Paul is writing one new song as a framework to hang a select selection of callbacks. I mean, this is an incredibly upfront and obvious Beatle trick that Paul is employing here. I mean, okay, this isn't a band on the run reprise or anything, that comes later, but still, the use of the repeated refrains and callbacks does give the whole experience of this album a sense of completion and unity. You know, this is a hero's journey that has been linked thematically. It works. Unlike the terrible uh, Trip of the Life Fantastics highlights album, this is the highlights of Band on the Run before you've even finished Band on the Run. You know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly cheesy showman type of move, almost a bit like the end of a Ringo Starr album or Lennon doing Just Because at the end of Rock and Roll. But we let Paul get away with it because the rest of the album is just legitimately strong enough to be worth revisiting. Like, if it had been a bad album, it'd be like, oh God, do we have to listen to these songs again? But I couldn't imagine how exciting this must have been that the first time people would have heard. It's like, oh, cool. We, you know, we get to hear a bit of Jet again and Mrs. Vanderbilt. Like, I'm a huge fan of intertextuality and callbacks and references because, you know, they're easier than coming up with fresh new ideas. But Paul does it here with such daring flair and such confidence. Like, in anyone else's hands, this would have been so awful and come across so poorly, but Paul is the master of his songwriting craft, the master of the studio. This just is such a brilliantly stuck landing for such a strange idea. Strangely enough, though, this is the only song from this side of the album that made it onto Wings Over America. Like, shockingly, 1985 didn't make it onto that set list. Though, even if it had, I sort of think it would have been as good as this one live. I mean, out of all of the made-to-order massive stadium rockers taken from this album, and despite the fact that they don't even play the entire song with all the cute little French stuff, um, this song might actually be the best band on the run song from Wings Over America. I mean, fucking everything for the Wings Over, Over America acoustic set is amazing, but the more enthused, slightly up-tempo way they play this song live gives it a whole new lease of life. And what, what does that French trans- translation actually work out as? Well, according to thebeatlesbible.com, it roughly translates to I hope that, thanks to this campaign, many French people will discover the charms. So let me remind you that our tourist help service is there for you. As you know, we send free of charge a variety of guides, list of addresses, London and its suburbs, in French of course. Recommended guides on Great Britain, guides of farms offering a room for the night, guides of the inns, List of organisations specialised in séjours au pair as a paying host. Guides for motorised tourists featuring a translation of the English driving book in French. So, I don't think I've ever discussed this before, but that's got to be some sort of messed up joke, right? This is just Paul putting in some random French bit of dialogue into this medley. And, you know, like Lennon on Iron the Walrus, he is hoping that we uh, interpret it as some sort of weird clue, or like, you know, we've got to translate it, what, what, what does it actually mean? Or is it a reference to something like Michelle, you know, Paul singing French again? But this time, it really is nonsense. Um, even though it's got nothing to do with the lyrics of the song, though, it fits perfectly, doesn't it? Hey ho! Ho! 
hey-ho. And last but certainly not least, folks, we begin the end of this phenomenal album with the unforgettably dynamic animated piano playing from Paul. Oh, of course, this could only be 1985. And I'm already finding it hard to call this anything other than one of the greatest songs in the entire Paul McCartney canon. This is fucking insane. Oh, my God. Of course, if Paul's previous Beatle trick was going to work to full effect, he would have to follow through with the second part. You know, Picasso's last words was the kind of Sergeant Pepper's reprise of this album. So 1985... Forgive me for saying this, it might be heresy. This is the A Day in the Life of Band on the Run. It comes out of nowhere and it's really badass. The piano lick in this song is legit another highlight of the album for me. Like, you've already grown so accustomed to the uh, either low ebb folky side of the album or the hard rockiness. And then you're just assaulted by this Paul McCartney piano showmanship and you're bowled over by it. You know, this is him returning to the piano on an album where I didn't think there was going to be any. And he saved it for the final song, which is really effective, though it's still not a silly love song. And that's that's that, that, that that's why it feels so cool. Like, he does sing about love, and there's definitely shades of Linda in this. You know, she may get love, but she won't get mine. You know, of course, when Paul is lost for a lyric, he will replace it with something about love. But... You know, this is so much more universal in its kind of obtuseness than a lot of his other love songs, like My Love. Although, being someone who does like to overanalyze every lyric ever written, I did find it quite refreshing for Paul to come out and say that there is no George Orwell connection with this song. You know, this isn't based on the book 1985. And it's just that no one ever left alive in 1985 rhymes really well and it fits the melody really well. I mean, of course, there are a few snippets of depth here in this song, but I love how, unlike A Day in the Life, Paul decided to keep it thematically light here. You know, this is the end of the journey. This is meant to pump you up for the end of the album and leave you on a high note. My God, does it do that? I mean, one of the best albums has to have one of the best closers, right? Like... As much as the other songs go towards building the legend of this album, this song is the perfect way to end it and none of the other tracks could have gone in this spot. Is it the best? Is it the greatest of the McCartney Big Bold Brass epic album closes though? You know, you've got to put it up against songs like Backseat in My Car, Morse Moose and the Grey Goose, maybe even Through Our Love. And the fact that it's so hard to choose shows just how good Paul is at ending an album in this big Hollywood kind of way. Now, I was never going to talk about this song without mentioning the obviously superior version that features on the Wings documentary One Hand Clapping, which I will be reviewing on this show sooner rather than later, I think. And that version keeps the guitar and the drums out of the mix until the final third verse of the song. And whilst this mix is more immediately, dramatically bombastic and probably fits the album, you know, more faithfully, the one-hand clapping version, you know, which kind of kicks in at this point here, 
just having Paul sat at the piano for a couple of minutes with a cigarette in his mouth is mind-meltingly cool. And then Paul gets up with the backing track on and he's, and he's got his mic in hand here. It's one of my favourite Wings visuals ever, put against one of my favourite Wings songs ever. And, oh my God, the guitar we're hearing now as well. This is on a blisteringly powerful, aggressive, technical level that we would not see until Jimmy McCulloch would join the band later the same year. Like, this is Paul going for broke now. You know, there's there's that great quote from Linda. He'd had to slit his throat and give up, or he had to regain his magic. And oh my God, you can feel the magic in his building, folks. This is a, this is so Titanic. And I don't know how you couldn't be excited at this point in the album. I'm struggling to keep on topic. This is just so enlivening and thrilling. It's so, oh, it's so fucking awesome. And of course, we end on a literal reprise of the title track, another incredibly Beatle-esque move. And since this album is borderline arguably of Beatle quality, it works, doesn't it? And there we are, folks. We are indeed at the end of another episode of Listen With Sam. We have just ended Band On The Run. Let's quickly pretend for a moment that we don't know anything after 1973. This is... The best Paul has gotten, I think. I think that's pretty conclusive, both in terms of fandom shorthand and legitimate analysis. This album is, of course, of higher quality than Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway. I mean, the consistency is thrilling. This is all down to the fact that Paul was, you know, down on his luck. He wasn't doing well. I love it when Paul is upset and unhappy and has something to prove, because you get stuff like this. If Paul is happy, like I say... I am unhappy. But yeah, let me know what you thought about this album. Let me know what you thought back in 1973. If you listened to Band on the Run when it originally came out, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. But yeah, Band on the Run thoughts in general as well. What do you think about this album now? Does it still hold up? Is it overrated? Like I say, I would love to get this conversation going as well. But yeah, that was another episode of Listen with Sam. I hope a good time was had by all. I hope we passed the audition yada 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 personally this episode was a bit of a dog to get off my back and i'm glad it's done but all that aside this is this was still ban on the run this was still incredibly fun to do and despite the fact that i'm just dying to get to, to some of the later wings albums there was no doubt in my mind that i was still gonna take my time and do this episode properly because you know what folks without ban on the run paul probably wouldn't be in the position he is now this album is iconic for a reason. Yes, it might be overplayed a little bit, but its place in history is irreplaceable. Anyway, folks, thank you for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. This has been another Listen With Sam episode. Thank you all for listening to the show. Make sure you drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hit us up on the Twitter at McCartneypod. Check out the blog, paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Please leave us a five-star review or give us a thumbs up. And finally, if you want to see the show grow, if you want to keep the lights running, if you want to help support me in creating new content, then please consider joining our wonderful Patreon 
family. Next episode, folks, will be my swapcast with Anthony Rotuno from the Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast, where we will be discussing John Lennon's rock and roll. And then after that, I'm going to be doing another swapcast where we will be talking about Chobber or Snover or the Russian album. Cannot wait to cover those, folks. But yeah, thank you for listening. This has been really fun. Nice quick episode for you. I hope you all enjoyed it. Next time we'll be next time we're here, it'll be Venus and Mars, which I'm incredibly looking forward to. I, I feel like I haven't even listened to that album in fucking ages. So yeah, see you all soon, folks. I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out already. Peace and love, peace and love. Let's get out of here.